What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by Dr. Derek Miles, our senior clinician on our Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab team. This week on episode 217 of our podcast, we're going to discuss a common topic in sports medicine, the role of sacroiliac, or SI joint for short, in low back and hip pain. The SI joint links the spine of the pelvis. The S stands for sacrum. It's a wedge-shaped bone that uh, the vertebra of the spine are stacked on top of. And the I stands for ilium, a wide portion of the hip bone. Many health and fitness professionals associate low back and hip pain to movement of this joint, often claiming they can feel the joint being out of place or that it's rotated when they assess an individual during a physical exam. Does the SI joint movement cause low back and hip pain? Can professionals feel the joint out of place or rotated? And if so, what should we do about it? All this and more on this week's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. Now, Derek, you use a belt when you train, yeah? Oh, yeah. When do you Pioneer use belt. it? You do, there you go. No, so Pioneer, Matt at Pioneer, uh, which is uh, their website's generalleathercraft.com. They'll custom make you a belt. They have belts for everything from powerlifting all the way to like hybrid type training for CrossFit. Whatever you need, they, they have it. Now, when do you use a belt? Do you put it on like right at the start of the session or just on your last warm-up or when do you use it? Typically, I start around my last warm-up. Okay. Yeah. That's the same thing. Like for me, I put it on last warm up just to make sure it doesn't feel any different from like the last warm up to the work sets. Cause effectively the belt increases the velocity of the movement and makes the mechanics a little bit different. Um, so I just want to feel that. But when I have new people use a belt, I have them wear it from the jump, like empty bar sets all the way up one, they probably need to break that belt in, you know, especially if they've never used it before. And two, because if we agree that using a belt changes the mechanics of the lift slightly, just get used to it. And if you're new to lifting, I think something like that could throw people off. They just put it on, on their work sets. They're like, wait, what the heck? Um, you get questions about that in the rehab space. Like when should I use a belt? Yeah, pretty often it is, especially in the rehab. If I've been hurting and I'm getting back into it, when's the time to put the belt back on? And typically my answer is if you're asking that question, it's time. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Or, or sometimes, I mean, do you have people actually use a belt during the rehab process when they otherwise wouldn't use it as sort of like a, if it makes them feel more secure, for example, I can't think of any off the top of my head because most of the time, once you've adjusted to using a belt, it's the thing that you do when you lift. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I've ever taken someone who's never used one before and said, let's break one out at this point. Yeah. Same. It's, it, effectively, if someone's like, Oh, I hurt my back and I've got, you know, I'm sensitive doing these motions, either it's extension or flexion or whatever. Should I just put a belt on? I'm like, well, if you haven't used a belt, that's probably not where we're going, but people who have used a belt before, if that's something that is going to allow them to do the movements they want to do, um, then our, my main goal is like adjust the load, but still use the belt. And uh, Pioneer has been sponsoring us. They just uh, re-upped. So we're going to be with them the rest of the year. Uh, really like Matt and those guys over at generalleathercraft.com. And so if you're in the market for a new belt, you need a second belt, you're going to start getting into some different types of lifting. Check them out over at generalleathercraft.com. Uh, this podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's kind of close to you. It's like right next door. Yeah. 
Good yeah, they're over there. Uh, their mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Now, you have a home gym. Yes. But you're not, you mostly go, you're going now to like a, a, a commercial facility. Yes. Just for like motivation or like <laughs> get out of the house. Yeah, well, to get out of the house. That way I'm just not a cave troll all the time. Yeah, sure. Well, we get a bunch of questions on like what, you know, where should you get plates from? Where should you get bars from or, or air bikes or, you know, racks, this, that, and the other. Uh, there's definitely different price points in the market. You can go spend, you know, a ton of money on a, you know, different brand, Sornex or a Leica or something for, for a rack, uh, barbell plates or whatever. Uh, but Bells of Steel's got some really great products um, on their website as well. And so they actually gave us a discount code, 10% off of their items using code BBM23. Um, and if you don't like their products, they got a 30 day money back guarantee and they'll even pay the return shipping, which is kind of nice. So they have everything from plates, bars, racks, uh, conditioning devices, this, that, and the other. So check them out over at bellsofsteel.us. That's all linked in the description below. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Now you're an athleisure wear guy. I know that because you're not oh, in the yes. clinic anymore. So you're just, do you have any Viore stuff? I have a pair of shorts. Yeah. That Okay. So I am, uh, you know, I'm a fashionista. I don't know what the, is there a male term? Is it fashionista? I don't know. But I've been through everything. I've been through Lulu. I've been through 10,000. I've been through Roan, whatever. Viore for me. And this is why I reached out to them. I, I got some of their stuff. I paid for it myself. And I was like, this stuff's great. And uh, contacted them. And they were like, oh, we'll, we'll sign on the podcast. This stuff is very good. The, the shorts and pants you can actually train in. So it's not that they just look good outside of the gym, but you actually train in them and they don't pill, they don't rip, they don't tear. Um, so you can wear them outside the gym without looking like an idiot. It's like the best of both worlds. Some of the stuff you like at leisure wear from other companies, you look great outside of the gym, but when you go to try to train, you're like, can't use this. And then other stuff works great in the gym. When you leave the gym, you look like an idiot. So this stuff uh, for me, I love their shorts. I train in their core shorts. Uh, their fleet pants are like my go-to wear. Um, if I'm going to be like going to the driving range, going to the gym, going to get groceries or whatever. And again, they got a 20% off, uh, discount code. Um, actually you just go to the website, viori.com. That's V U O R I.com backslash barbell. It's linked in the description below and you can get 20% off your first order. Uh, all right, Derek, you just wrote this article. We just published it today about the sacroiliac joint and its movement and how it relates to low back and hip pain. I'm sure this is going to cause a big kerfuffle amongst some of our uh, mechanistic rehab friends. But can you just give people a background of like, what is the history of SI joint movement and pain? Like, where did this thing come from? It was pulled from the ether from someone deciding that this was a causative source of pain. Really, if you look at a lot of the evolution of musculoskeletal, it's essentially as soon as we got uh, imaging, we started finding things to blame. And as soon as we could put our hands on something, we started finding things to blame. And I think, well, I don't think there's always been a tendency to look for a thing as being the cause of symptoms. And it's easy to say that it is your SI joint or it is your L5 or just pick some structure. Uh, there was a famous paper from about 10 years ago that really showed as soon as we got x-ray capabilities, low back pain was all blamed on the facet. And then we got MRI capabilities and it was all blamed on the disc. And then we got fMRI. So everything was now on the brain. And it's like, as soon as we get a new picture, we get a new result of what we think the causative issue is. And SI joint pain is no different. <clears throat> 
And if you look at the, I guess, evolution of physical therapy as a whole, and here I, I would probably differentiate PT and Cairo a little bit just because I think there were different players involved with the narrative, but it really was uh, guru driven mm. in a lot of the manual therapy schools. And I don't know that I think 50 years ago that was necessarily bad because at that point the profession hadn't really adopted anything resembling evidence-based medicine or being able to substantiate your claims. However, the downside is that narrative is still perpetuated and we still, even in academic institutions, and actually I pulled out my ortho textbook from when I was in PT school this morning, and it's still being taught as standard of care when all of the evidence says that you know pain is multifactorial. There rarely is, outside of specific trauma, a pain generator that's causing all the issues. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I recall back when I first got in the coaching game, this is like 07, 08, so like 15 years ago, I went I was just at that point trying to amass as many different certifications and credentials and subject matter expertise I could because I, I wasn't really sure what to do. And I, I think that faces a lot of like new coaches or even new like rehab professionals as they enter the space. They're like, I did the school, I got the piece of paper, but now like I'm seeing people in real life, like what do in, you know, these very uh, variety of different circumstances. And so uh, I went to this one uh, with the sports medicine physician and he was talking about low back pain and I'll never forget this. You know, he, he was talking about most of the low back pain is due to facet joint, you know, are, you know, issues. And he said, zygopophyseal joint. I was like, that's a long word. That <laughs> that's, must be legit. There, how many syllables are in that thing? Then he talked about nutated and counter nutated hips and of the, you know, with re, uh, relation to the sacra, sacrum and iliac and how they inter, interact. And so uh, I, I took that away and I was thinking, man, so the people with low back pain, it's just their, their ilium's moving about their sacrum or, or they got a facet joint issue. Those are the, those are the two things. And if I can either avoid those things happening during movement, I'm going to avoid low back pain in my clients. And that if they do have low back pain, that's probably the cause. And I need to address that. And like, that was, that was my takeaway at the time. That's 15 years ago. So just for our listeners, well, you know, I talked about what the SI joint is in the intro, but when you're trying to explain this to a patient or a client or, or whatever, how do you describe, you know, what is the SI joint and like, what are its normal movements? Really, it comes down to it doesn't move a lot. Like all of the evidence would say that we're talking a few degrees or, or a few millimeters. And you can almost think of your sacrum like a keystone sitting in between the two ilium. And if we make the architectural analogy there, like keystones are there to make things very stable. Yeah. And the ilium just for, for listeners are part of your hip, your hip bones. But yes, so effectively this keystone sitting in between your two hip bones the particular part of the hip bone, the ilium that makes up your, your SI joint. Do you actually bring that up when you're talking to patients? You're like, so anyway, here's your SI joint. Here's what the anatomy is. Or do you just try to avoid that? Uh, I think it depends on if the patient wants to have that conversation. I'm never going to lead with that, but more often it is the prior beliefs or prior story. Like I was told that my SI joint is out of place and then you have to have that conversation. And yeah. it is the, well, why would you think that? Or how would that come to be And trying to work through the process of, you know, showing it doesn't move much at all. It's not, 
you are stable and there is that same variability from person to person that we see in every other joint. So the, the, the sacrum sitting between the two hip bones and in particular, this, the ilium, again, just an anatomical feature of the hip bone. There is a difference in like how these are oriented between individuals, as far as like maybe the center line of the ilium with respect to the center of the sacrum so like it could be rotated forward backwards or in a different axis I, I, in your article you talk about you know rotation about the z-axis y-axis x-axis is there a normal sort of relationship and, and and is that and if so is that a range and like people can be outside of that is that a thing well, there's always going to be a range for anything we define as normal. I think part of the issue we run into in medicine too often is we define normal as a point. So, mm-hmm. you know, if your blood pressure is uh, 119 over 81, it's it's not the one that shows up on the list. Sure. And so everything's going to have a range with it. But when you look at how much the sacrum or ilium move or even the rotation of it, the range, uh, I believe there was one article that looked in uh, side to side. It was a cadaver study. So you can't infer that this was the case in a living human. I will make that caveat. However, it's pretty rare that even in a cadaver, your ilium uh, changes its orientation post-death. And there was like 17 degrees side to side difference in the some of the landmarks we use. So ASIS, uh, PSIS, so anterior superior iliac spine and posterior superior iliac spine. So you see these big differences in orientation side to side, and it really does bring on that what is normal and, and where is the line conversation. And part of the issue is always when we have these talks, we all picture the skeleton that was hanging up in our classes where Mm -hmm. everything is as anatomically correct as can humanly be. And we forget that, uh, that is the ideal representation and not the way it really works. So, so do you think that there's like a, like, is there a known range for like, you know, if you were looking at somebody's MRI or a CT or even X-ray, you're saying, Oh, this is way too far rotated or not rotated enough or something like that. There's never been an associated study that I've seen linking that to pathology. So when people are saying, and, oh, your hips are rotated, like what <laughs> compared to yeah. compared to what? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's but, real. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, it, but that really is how it goes. And the issue being, or it, one of the issues being in how we measure it, because the base model is palpation. Okay. And so that, when that you're just, talking, that's so touching, touching on yeah, a certain yeah. landmark. Yeah. And your ASIS and PSIS are very big landmarks. So, you know, it's like somebody asking about a gym in LA. You're like, okay, well you're in LA, but like, that's a big place. Sure. You know, and it's the same thing with these landmarks where you can be on it, but you could be in two very different parts of it. And most of the diagnostic are actually, pretty much all of the diagnostic criteria for nutation, counter nutation, or upslip, downslip, whichever school you're ascribing to is based off of a subjective exam. So if someone comes in telling you that they have pain on the right side, it is increased when they're sitting versus standing. And I'm going to be wrong because I've filed the 
stuff, the diagnostic side of this and things I don't need to care about. But, you know, they may say you have an upslip on the right side, but you take that subjective report away and all of a sudden everything goes to coin flips on agreement on what's going on. So there's no real normal range of the orientation of the ilium related to the sacrum outside of like gross, like dislocation or fracture related, you know, like, Hey, yeah, we're looking at your x-ray and it turns out your, your whole hip has been dislodged mm-hmm. from your sacrum. You've torn through all the sacroiliac ligaments and uh, yeah. So now you got your ilium sitting way back or way forward. That, that could happen with like a motor vehicle accident, get kicked by a horse. Motocross wreck. Hey, let's, let's not point fingers, but something high, high velocity, high impact, high force, um, being applied to the joint. And at that point you're talking about like a gross traumatic injury rather than like, yeah. So anyway, I was, I was squatting on my platform. That's not, you know, perfectly level. Mm -hmm. And now my hip is rotated and now that's causing me pain. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Yeah. Okay. So have you seen somebody post like motor vehicle accident and their hip was actually, you know, their ilium was actually displaced from the sacrum. Is that something you've seen in practice? Uh, I've seen skydiver versus telephone pole where that happened. Oh my. And so you can feel that no matter how gross Uh, the lag landmarks are in size. Yeah. You can feel that certainly. Okay. So when you're doing a physical exam, and we're talking about these basic anatomical landmarks. Now, if you guys haven't taken a gross anatomy course before, never seen a cadaver, never seen a skeleton, you know, hanging in a classroom, something like that, there are a number of bony features on the actual hip and the sacrum. And you can f- feel, I'm putting these in quotation marks, you guys can't see this, air quotes, uh, you can feel where they are, but they're all relatively large is what you were talking about earlier. So it's like, if the you know, point of your index finger is on your anterior superior iliac spine. It's another bony feature on the hip. You you could be one millimeter, five millimeters, 10 millimeters, one side or the other, and you're getting a different sort of sensation of, well, this is where that point is. There's no real agreed upon way to do this. But in general, how good are our physical exam skills at feeling these basic landmarks? So there was a systematic review by Cooperstein that actually just pulled up. And what they found among all the studies they looked at is, uh, I think the word could be horrendous when it comes to the palpation skills. Um, It's just not reliable. And if you look at, I honestly can't think of many studies off the top of my head that shows palpation to really be of much utility. And there is... Now, for identifying landmarks and talking about things like, you know, is something rotated? Palpation certainly has some utility in other uh, functions. Yeah, you can use it for like pain provocation. You're like, hey, if I touch this thing, they're pain. Like, okay, high degree of like reliability between professionals and like doing it on the same person over and over again. But like if you and I were both to palpate somebody and been like, oh, here's where this landmark is, you and I would be unlikely to agree. Yes. And then they would say that you're wrong because I've been in practice more or longer than you. So I have more experience and whoever has more experience always is the, uh, the correct one in the situation. It's this wonderful phenomenon to where you can never, uh, catch up to or leapfrog someone who's been in practice for a longer period of time. Yeah. Yeah. The old, the old age (laughs) supremacy here. So, so if we're not very good, and to use your term horrendous at feeling these basic anatomical landmarks and agreeing on where they are, how good are we at like detecting changes 
or like asymmetries. You hear that all the time. Like, oh, this hip is higher than the other one, lower than the other, further back, further forward, nutated, counter, all these different terms depends on, you know, how you're educated and the terms used. But how good are we at detecting those sort of things? We're not. <laughs> still horrendous? Is it still bad? Yeah. Well, but there's still implications that in the normal population, it moves to a degree to where even if you could change it, you could detect it. If you're talking about something moving five millimeters or in some studies, they'll talk about 0.7 degrees or 0.8 degrees. There's no way you could differentiate that even if you could do it. Just uh, typically uh, when we talk about like standard error measurements. So uh, if I take a measurement 10 times, what's going to be the variation in what's going on? Most of the time it's listed around five degrees. So you're talking about movement within a joint that is 20% or, you know, of what is able to be seen by us or measured by us. And they, they've actually done some interesting studies a little while back, one where they actually put like metal pins in people's PSIS and took a measurement and then did a manipulation. And so they x-rayed them both times just to see how much it moved. And it didn't. Interesting. So, it, we're not even talking just like palpation at this point. They've they've turned people into pin hip and done manipulations and shown that there isn't an appreciable movement there. Yeah, it almost seems like a, like a princess and a pea kind of situation. You're like, there's no way you can feel it reliably, repeatably, and then you're going to do something and, and say, hey, we we changed something. But but you can't do that either. You can't feel that either. Well, the funny part about it that you use that in particular is I know in a lot of rehab schools, they will do something to the effect of like put a pee under a pillow or whatever and say, you just have to be able to fill the pee. And <laughs> it, it's just like, it. there's a lot of, we do this because still in the treatment paradigm. And I think part of it is this desire to really be able to figure out what's going on. And I think I mentioned in our last podcast, there, there's always this propensity to want to be, a, or we're trained to be diagnosticians. And that's cool that you came up with this diagnosis, but how does it change what you're going to do? Yeah. And if it doesn't change, should we really be that hung up on it? And it turns out when it comes to the SI joint in particular, most of the things we talk about aren't really a thing. Yeah. I mean, so I'm getting, I'm getting that impression here. So it, it seems like to rehash what we've covered so far, we aren't good at feeling where these bony landmarks are in a reliable and repeatable way. Uh, that's at baseline. We don't have any normative data. So data across the population about what the orientation should be at baseline or default or something that promotes health or function or whatever. And, and so now we're left with this quandary like, okay, so if we can't feel where it starts, where it goes to, and we don't even know like where it should be, is there any sort of data tackling like, yeah, movement from the start point to this point is reliably associated with low back pain? Does that exist? What about hip pain? Uh, here you're starting to split hairs, but uh, there is some data that would say like, 
if you lack some internal rotation, you may be more predisposed. But once again, if you get into the entire bolus of data on the topic, what you start seeing is that's probably just related to a special or a, a certain population. Uh, hockey players is the one where you'll see it listed a lot. Um, whereas, you know, if you lack hip internal rotation and you're a hockey goalie, you're probably not on the ice that much. Whereas in the general population, there could be some more variation. And there are some studies that show uh, some people have more external rotation. Some people have more hip internal rotation and some people have the same. So once again, our, our variation of what is normal is just so wide that we can't apply everyone to the skeleton that hung in our anatomy lab. Yeah, but that's not that's not particularly related to the SI joint and its anatomy. No. That's more of like the functional result in whatever your current anatomy and muscle length and exercise history and, you know, anthropometry and all that sort of stuff. So with respect to the SI joint, we can't really say one way or the other that a particular orientation is good, bad, or ugly. It just... Nope. And really, even if you take it up to like... uh the interventional PM&R side of things, there still isn't really a gold standard for diagnosing SI joint dysfunction. Uh, what you'll see in some studies is they will use like lidocaine injections or, or some type of numbing agent. And still that hasn't really washed out is saying that the SI is the pain generator and we can compare it. So if you're comparing junk to worse junk, you know, it, it's hard to say that uh, we have good information out of it, but it also, you know, we've accepted or the literature has really moved on to low back pain or pain in general being multifaceted. And the same thing will be said for the SI joint or SI joint uh, that, you know, there is a lot of layers to this, but we keep trying to nail it down to if we fix this one little thing, everything else gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I mean, I get it all the time, particularly when I'm having conversations with folks like in the gym or whatever. And they're like, oh, my hip, I've got this hip thing or low back thing. And, you know, I saw somebody about it and they said it was my SI joint or my, my hips are rotated or this, that, and the other. Um, and then, yeah. So where do you, you, you start the conversation somewhere from there? If they're asking for advice, <laughs> uh, we'll get to that here shortly. But yeah, that, if they're not asking for advice, I'm more of like a Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why, why and how they diagnose that and how confident they are in that finding. So here's the uh, multi-million dollar question. Should the SI joint be assessed on somebody with low back pain or hip pain? I mean, it depends on what we talk about by assessing. Like, it, does it hurt over your PSIS? Then, yeah. I mean, did that mean I assessed it? Because I, I do want to know where things hurt because that gives me a little bit of a working start, but I'm certainly not palpating for upslips or downslips or nutations or counter nutations. Yeah. So it seems like you're saying like a pain provocation test where you're literally touching the joint or touching the area and you're saying, oh, there's pain over this area. So that's okay. Generally where, I, where I'm thinking about as far as what could contribute, um, but not necessarily like, okay, if you have pain here, so you did the pain provocation test and now I'm going to assess are these bony landmarks level for example, or is one higher or lower or more anterior towards the front, more posterior towards the back or shifted in some way you're, you're recommending against that latter part, but not the former part. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So why are people still doing this then? <laughs> I mean, why are we still doing a lot of things that have been completely 
disproven in the literature. It's because, Jordan, I don't know if you know this, but clinical practice is 10 years ahead of the evidence. And it will <laughs> always be that way, even though the evidence says that the evidence is 17 years ahead of clinical practice. <laughs> yeah, pe- yeah, people do say that. Yeah, we're, we're generally behind. It takes like a whole generation or two to come pa- come through to update clinical practice. I mean, some of this has got to be due to like the market, you know, and, and so the, the patient population you see, they want a diagnosis of like, this is why you have pain. Here's the thing. And it's less sexy to say, well, there's a number of things contributing here and actually nailing it down probably doesn't matter as far as what we do about it in practice, but they want to know like, well, why did I have, why did this happen? We need to like, uh, to, to, to answer the question, to put a bow on it. But I just, I don't know why honesty is less sexy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, that's kind of where I am on this. In to be a minute ago, you had said like, well, how confident is the person that they're correct in making that assessment? I'd be willing to bet if you did that study, you're going to see a high degree of confidence in it. And it's just caught on is this dogma within the musculoskeletal field. And I think there's obviously layers to why it's lingered around, but really it's the path of least resistance because you know, you're, I, I love your quote when you're talking about uh, like rooting for professional or collegiate sports. It's like all you, your t-shirts a different color than mine. And that's really what it comes down to. And I think there's something to be said. It's like, well, I heard in school that there is a nutation or counter nutation. I heard on my weekend con ed class that there's an upslip or a downslip. Therefore I am now an upslip fan. And I am going to paint my chest and put glitter on my face. And this is going to be the thing I'm going to identify as for the rest of my career. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's tough. It, it, you know, if you learned something and it, it's part of your sort of fund of knowledge, it's hard to unsee that later on unle- uh, without being willing to accept like, you know, maybe this thing that I learned and like became part of my identity and part of my like, again, working fund of knowledge, it's hard to accept. Yeah. So that's all wrong. And I have to come up with another identity and further expand my fund of knowledge. Yeah, people, particularly folks who have not been doing this for a long time or uh, maybe are isolated in a way from certain, you know, from the the latest research and this and the other, particularly research that like challenges their beliefs, it's really difficult to, to do that. So I, I can empathize uh, across the healthcare professions and, and into the fitness professional uh, world too. If you have a certain belief system and, you know, studies come out that don't necessarily support that, you know, you kind of have two options. You can either incorporate this <laughs> data, you know, into uh, your fund of knowledge where you start thinking like, mm, I'm, maybe I'm less confident about that. Or you can, re- you know, which is painful because then you're less certain you come across as less of an authority uh, and you're sort of hemming and hawing or you can just do the ostrich thing. You just ah, bury your head and uh, I'm just going to keep moving on. I feel better about my ability to practice uh, if I don't sort of take this into consideration. Well, I always think about the studies where they do fMRI on like magicians and normal people and if you're doing a magic trick in front of a normal person, there's this big like 4th of July display of, you know, surprise and all of the parts that go along with it. And the magician is like business as usual because they know the trick. (laughs) Right. And 
and it's like, well, how do we get that surprise reflection out of it versus like you said, just going into an ostrich or, you know, doubling down on what's being said. And I think obviously we get some backlash because of the like asking for citation side of things. And I, that's necessary, but sometimes we just have to agree that, Hey, neither one of us have a citation, but I'm willing to admit that, uh, I don't know what the answer is here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay to not necessarily have a citation for a particular belief or even a particular practice, but that has to also be couched in like a level of uncertainty, the appropriate level of uncertainty. And if the stakes are low, meaning you're unlikely to harm somebody, unlikely to change their trajectory in a negative way otherwise, then maybe you don't have to, you know, read them the riot act when you say, yeah, and I'm not really sure about this. But if it does have the potential to cause harm, particularly in, in like a situation in the pain and rehab space and particularly in, uh, with SI joint sort of dysfunction, man, that's tough. You tell somebody they've got a SI joint dysfunction or their SI joint is rotated and that's what's causing their low back pain man, what are the odds that they're going to come out of this without really appreciably changing the SI joint anatomy and orientation uh, without pain? You know, that's like, that's, I got to fix that <laughs> because it, and because it doesn't move unless you're involved in some sort of, you know, high speed crash, high force transfer sort of trauma, they're never going to fix it. Then what does that lead people? It leads to people not being active and fearful of movement. Yeah. And then we wonder why, 20% of people meet physical activity guidelines. Yeah. It, our message tends to be this like doom and gloom if you don't move a certain way. And even, I think it's funny earlier, you mentioned lifting on a offset platform. Like it, it is funny how sterile and how pristine we want everything to be when we go train to go live our lives in an actual dirty environment. And to expect that, your platform is off by 10 degrees and that's going to cause this big issue. Like nobody has ever went and slung bags of concrete and tamped down the ground to make sure it was level before they did it. You bring out a, a, a level and you're like, Ooh, yeah, this is too far. <laughs> can't, can't build this skyscraper today. The The truck is four degrees off center. Allow, allow me to indulge you in a story before we move on on like, you know, people to who have been told that they have an SI joint issue and the, what they should do about it. So back uh, during my intern year, uh, when I was in LA, I was trained at this place called Deuce Gym. Uh, it was in Venice. Uh, so it was cool. Most of it's outside in Southern California. You can really train year round outside. First thing when I show up there, they didn't have enough weights. They didn't have a bar that was suitable for powerlifting. So I was like, hey, can I bring some weights in? Let me bring a bar. I'll just store it here. Let me train. They were like, sure, that's fine. It was an old uh, car repair shop that they had repurposed. And so the yard that we would train in outside, it was, I don't know, 20 degree slope, something like that. And that's where the racks were. So I'm squatting, you know, 400s, 500s outside on a slope of 20 degrees. And I did, in fact, develop some hip pain when I was doing that. And in my stupid brain, which is most of my cerebral cortex at some points in my life, I was like, it's the, it's the surface. I gotta, I gotta get to a flat area or whatever. So anyway, I started driving all over town just to find, you know, a relatively flat area to train hip pain persisted, hip pain persisted. And, uh, finally, uh, I reduced the load, changed up some of the exercises to where I could train pain-free. Uh, but when I was doing that, I was still training 
on the sloped slope surface, but the hip pain went away. Uh, it is funny. I got during my radiology rotation, they asked for a volunteer to do um, an MRI on the lo- lumbopelvic complex. And I had, I identified torn labrums, both hips and three herniated discs. <laughs> and I had no low back pain. I just had this hip pain. I was like, wait, is it labrum? Is it the surface? What the, what's going on? It turns out all I had to do was just change my training. And yeah, within, you know, a few weeks I was, I was back in business, but you know, at the time I was thinking, man, the surface is, is janky. I got all this anatomy that now I know is messed up. It's really hard to overcome those sort of narratives, you know, even if no one's explicitly telling you the knowledge that, wow, I've got some abnormal findings on imaging and I've got this surface that I got to train on. I'm like, man, that could have really, really hamstrung me as far as like actually being active and certainly making progress. But once I kind of got over that and, uh, you know, by the way, I was only sleeping three and a half, four hours a night <laughs> during my intern year. Oh, and you know, the stress of moving to a new location and, uh, all this other sort of stuff. So it was really just an overwhelming of stress as far as I could tell. But I ended up setting an all-time squat PR a few weeks later, uh, same thing with the deadlift PR and ended up being fine. But it's just like, it's hard to undo those narratives, even if you are aware of like what's causing pain and, and how to manage it is just, that was, that was difficult. Well, there's that one study, or actually there's a couple of different iterations of the study that show that people will be willing to have surgery because of an image, even if they're asymptomatic. Just, to, it, just to fix the thing. Yeah. Just to, because it is that like, you know, if it looks ideal, then it has to be better. But, you know, I don't think anyone's ever looked at a ideal of, or a, uh, x-ray of some Harrington rods down someone's T-spine and been like, you know what? That's <laughs> ideal. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, as we've discussed in a number of other podcasts, you know, there are a lot of quote unquote abnormal findings that you'll, you'll see on imaging that are associated with particular types of training or activity or sport. And, uh, sometimes these are a feature and not a bug. You know, you'll look at hypertrophied end plates on vertebra and weightlifters. You'll see a different length forearm in tennis players for their dominant, you know, hand. You'll see thickening of various structures like in the knee uh, with respect to weightlifting. And it's like, are those abnormal? Is that a bug or is it a feature? And a lot of these things are just adaptive. Um, you know, the point is that the the stress being allocated to the individual is something they can currently tolerate and we're not quote unquote out kicking their coverage. Um with respect to what they can do. So, um, all right. Oh, do you have something you want to say to that? No, sports illustrated used to have this segment where they would have a picture of an athlete in basically tights and every month they would update it. And the game was, guess what sport this person plays. Oh, interesting. And, and it really shows the like heterogeneity or heterogeneity in morphology. Yeah. Like, I mean, no one would expect me in tights at this point in my life to be like, he's an X 800 runner. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it, it is that question, especially kind of with my pension for youth training, there's always the discussion of does the sport pick the athlete or the athlete pick the sport. Mm. Yeah. And you know, if you're tall, odds are someone's probably going to try and talk you into playing volleyball or basketball. Mm-hmm. And it's what's the saying they can't teach height. Yeah. And, can't teach speed. Same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And really out of that, like you're going to see adaptations as a result of the fact that you were probably jumping six standard deviations more than a baseball player. 
you know, okay, so here's my pitch. So, you know, Sports Illustrated has, they have a swimsuit issue, right? They got the body issue, which is just a bunch of athletes from different sports naked for some, I mean, whatever. All right, I guess that sells. I'm thinking a more anatomy focused issue. So we call it the big bang of body issue. And, and what you're going to see is different imaging scans <laughs> from different sports showing the well, quote unquote, you know, abnormal adaptations that different athletes will have across their body. You're going to see hockey players have, you know, thickened uh, aspects of their hips uh, and femurs. You're going to see hypertrophied uh, anterior cruciate ligaments, ACL ligaments and weightlifters and sprinters and stuff. You're going to see um, different changes in spinal morphology and rotational athletes, all sorts of stuff. It would be not only super useful for us as, you know, trying as, you know, public communicators of science information, like, see, this happens. And this is quote, this is normal, uh, for athletes, uh, who play these sports or people who engage in these activities. And then the public would be like, wow, can you imagine walking around with your back like that? And it's like, yeah, I mean, again, it's a feature, not a bug. That'd be a cool issue. I'd buy that. Well, but then you look at why are we not having conversations around Alex Smith being able to return to play? after his crazy tip fib injury mm. or, and you know, no one's going to look at his images and be like, that's normal or Adrian Peterson after his collarbone. And yeah. you look at these type things and you're like, well, this is objectively abnormal. And this person was able to return and perform well at the highest level. Well, mm -hmm. What's stopping you? I'm saying, man, be great PSA. <laughs> if we could, if we could do this, maybe a good article series, you know, big bang of, athletic bodies. Well, something to think about. All right. All right. So check this out. So let's say you're me and you're, you know, conversating with, uh, people in the, in the gym, uh, and they see you're wearing a barbell medicine shirt and they're like, you know, Hey, I'm familiar with your, with the company. And, uh, I've actually had got this low back pain thing. And I saw a PT or saw Cairo and they told me my hips are out of place. My hips are rotated and that's, what's causing low back pain. So I'm doing bird dogs and, you know, quadruped stuff. And I don't even know uh, all this sort of stuff. What should that person do? Like, how would you start the conversation and, and how would you frame it to get them to maybe move away from this narrative that this rotated hip is causing their pain? Cause we know that not only can we not assess this thing in any sort of reliable fashion, but the hips don't actually move enough to cause any sort of issue and we don't have even normal data on what the hip should be in the first place. So knowing all that, how would you start the conversation and get them on the right track? Given your scenario, I would ask them how what they're currently doing is working out for them. Sure. Um, yeah. And if they, if, if honestly, if someone said it's working out good, I feel like I'm getting back under the bar. My numbers are coming back. I carry on. Yep. But that typically is not the case if they're coming up and asking me that. And so Normally it's, well, how's that working out for you? Well, it's not. Well, have you thought about maybe trying something different? <laughs> and if you get yes to that, then it's like, so what does your programming look like? And what have you tried in the past? And You're just trying to get an starting, accounting of what they're do, what they've been doing. Yeah. Well, you know, it, you started this podcast out. And I'm sure we will get some people that'll be in the comments section, having a heyday with this one, but really uh, it's not, necessarily a conversation I need to have with that athlete, especially initially. Like I, what needs to happen is we need to talk about some ways of changing things for what may work for them. 
Mm-hmm. And so I probably don't need to come out of the gate and be like, your PT is full of crap. Because, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, that's definitely going to win me some brownie points. But really, you know, if we can find that entry point and say, well, you know, have we tried this? Or, you know, <laughs> if you think it's rotated, well, what steps have you taken to try and address that? Did it feel better? No. Okay. Well, how about we try whatever else is in the cards? Yeah. Are there specific exercises that you like for this sort of thing? Or is it more of the same, you know, stuff we cover in pain and training, what do and our general approach to pain and rehab? It's still the same general approach, but really I think part of the issue for a lot of these instances is it's not a specific set of exercises. It's where on the scale of the set of exercises that we need to start. You know, if it's something that's just aggravating you when you're going for a top single, odds are be like, hey, have you tried maybe not going for a top single for a few weeks or address your programming. But if it's like, this is interfering with my day, I can't sit at work. Well, then we're probably going to start talking about uh finding some ways of moving that you can tolerate and going from there. Like I, I increasingly think that when we're talking about specific exercise prescription, there's even a set of individuals that think if they do the exercises we prescribe, that's going to fix them. And if they do those exercises even harder, it will fix them faster. Whereas a lot of times it's like, well, how can I find the things you could tolerate let things calm down and then go back to reintroducing the things that you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I typically, typically my experience has been people fall into one of like three categories. The first category is the person who's previously insufficiently active. They don't train, they don't exercise formally. uh, And they've got low back pain, hip pain for this particular example. And so their, their entry point is very, very low as far as what physical activity they can tolerate. They need, we all agree they should start exercising. That's like almost priority number one. But in order to deal with this, like their entry point is far, far lower than somebody who's actually training. And so that person, you actually may need to restrict things like walking, for example, because that may be you know, exacerbating the problem if they try to walk a lot, for example. And so you have to find other stuff that uh, not only gets them moving, but also in a way that is, again, doesn't uh, uh, increase their exercise stress too far. It's where they can't handle it. Then you have the people on the complete opposite end. They are high level competitive in some form, whether it's recreationally or formally um, athletes. And they're able right now to, they can squat, they can deadlift, they can clean, they whatever they can do all that stuff. But whenever they go real heavy for, uh, you know, some stretch of time that this injury reliably flares up. And so they're like, how do I get around this? How do I manage this? And it's like, okay, so we don't yet have the training tolerance and the requisite fitness adaptations to deal with that volume and intensity and overall training stress that you're trying to achieve. And so we have to do the lay the groundwork for that to take place. You may in fact need all of that training in order to make progress, but in order to get to a place where you can sustain that level of training stress, we need to sort of, you know, bolster your current fitness levels. And so that person we're talking about lowering the load, maybe adding some tempo stuff, maybe adding some weird quote unquote exercises that are unilateral or in a different plane or whatever, just to try to like shore up any deficiencies. Everybody else is in the middle, you know, that's kind of the way I'd look at it. 
But it's the great uh, nobody wants to get strong slow. <laughs> Have you? What do you know about our, our Lord and Savior, progressive loading? Like, let me yes. introduce you. Why? Well, here's the thing. I tend to just leave off the progressive and just just load it, right? Just as much as we can tolerate. It's survivorship bias at its finest. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't hang, we'll kick you out of the program. Yeah. Do you yeah. even lift, bro? <laughs> There's a, this reminds me of this particular individual at, at a gym that I, I, I used to go to and, and she was very strong, squatted in the low 300s, um, clean and jerked over 200 pounds, snatched close to 200, very, very strong, but just uh, every few weeks kind of without fail, hip pain, low back pain kind of together would, would crop up. And then invariably her training would fall off. She wouldn't be squatting anymore. Certainly not squatting with any appreciable load. Wouldn't be doing the Olympic lifts and be doing 30, 40 minutes of quote unquote rehab work to start her training. And it's like, man, imagine if we could get you to a place where your training was otherwise inter uninterrupted. Like it was consistent. You were able to do the lifts you wanted to do, um, for years long stretches, uh, without having a sort of setback, that would be useful, right? And it's like, no, nah, but I want to be strong now. It's like, well, you you can, we're going to have to kick that can down the road. You're going to be stronger later, uh, but then you'll be able to not only sustain that level of performance, but also improve upon it over time. It's just, it's going to take longer um, than you probably want, but you're not going to get there by following this current approach. I mean, can you imagine the person is like, they invest in their 401k for like eight pay periods. And then they go to Vegas and spend half of it playing blackjack. And they're like, why aren't I getting rich? Like it's, like, <laughs> it's all risk. And it, you know, I think the issue is we, like I, I would say the fitness industry collectively don't do a good enough job about conveying the message of like consistency and how much time it takes to make those gains. And yeah. instead it's like, well, I got there as fast as you can. And, you know, you see even the athletes who get injured and six weeks out, they're doing some variation of a lift that uh, one could argue is probably not the best idea, but like that gets the clicks on whatever social media platform. And then 10 weeks out, they're like, I had a setback or you don't hear from them for four months. Mm -hmm. And so you're almost incentivized to, do dumb things yeah to send it try to get the yeah. uh try to get that validation yeah it's you know austin said this uh man a few years ago and it, it's something he's continued to say and I, I i found it pretty profound is that you're likely to be able to get much stronger than you think you ever thought was possible it's just going to take you longer than you ever thought possible um, and I, I agree, I believe that to be true. It, it's, you know, people are so focused on how fat, how strong can I get in 12 weeks, 10 weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. And it's like, well, what about 10 years, 12 years? Uh, I don't care how strong you get in 12 weeks. What's happening in 12 weeks. If there's a powerlifting meet and you're a competitive athlete, like, all right, cool. We got a time. We got a clock on this thing, but you've already been training. But for the person who's new, I don't care how quickly you get strong. I care that you're getting stronger. And I care that years from now, you're still on that same sort of trajectory. Your character arc is going to take years to develop with respect to strength, power, cardiorespiratory fitness, you know, movement proficiency, all this other stuff. What happens in the next three months is inconsequential so long as you don't have a major setback that takes you out of the game. You can't win if you're not in the game. And I think you're even more optimistic than me because it, the question is always like, how strong can I be today? Yeah. And it, you got to make it to 12 weeks 
first. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's probably because, you know, my frame of reference is the individuals that start a program and two weeks into it, they're like, I'm feeling good. I need to send it as much as I can. And it's hard to forecast out and even say where I'm going to be 12 weeks from now. Yeah. But I know that I'm feeling good today. I have my Taylor Swift on and I had Mm -hmm. my bang on the way up to the gym. So I'm ready to go as hard as I can. And it's like good training principles are boring. (laughs) It's, it's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Same shit, different shirt. That's the, uh, yeah, (laughs) that's, that's it. Well, but if your collar is different than mine, then that's an issue. Yeah. For listeners at home, I I have this take on sports, like just being a big sports fan, you know, in general, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense. You know, everybody's got a geographical tie. It seems like to a particular team, but most of the people on that team, if not all of them are not from that area. The only thing that's from that area that is, you know, branded from that area is the is the clothing, is the the jersey, whatever. So really, you're just rooting for laundry, which doesn't make much sense. That's a Seinfeld joke, but I, I found that also to be pretty uh, profound. Um, so yeah, we're, we're here on episode 217 with Dr. Derek Miles. To wrap this up, I really think a lot of the last maybe 15, 20 minutes of this podcast has been around like, you know, the narratives behind, you know, what could go wrong and how to address um, somebody who's been told that they've got low back pain, hip pain, whatever, from an SI joint issue, particularly rotation or, you know, different anatomical findings that are, as we discussed at the beginning of this, are unreliable. So to really, again, kind of put a bow on this and and uh, counter that narrative, people who have been told that they've got this SI joint dysfunction causing low back pain, what do you want them to know, Derek? Uh, there is hope to move and feel better. It's not tied to your hips rotating and there isn't really a lot of good evidence to say that they are rotating. Um, I I will caveat this because it hasn't been said at this point in the podcast. There are two instances where this conversation changes a little bit. One is during pregnancy where you get the general laxity of the joints. There you are going to have some increased movement, but there's still not a ton of evidence where there's no evidence saying that you can change the rotation with any type of manual technique. However, most certainly the joint moves more during, especially the later stages of pregnancy. Uh, Either Danlos is the other one that you will often hear talked about, which is a connective tissue disorder that tends to manifest in generalized joint hyper or uh, hypermobility. But even in that instance, uh, one of the highest yield ways we have of addressing symptoms is meeting physical activity guidelines and strength training. Yeah. So once again, uh, it's, I don't know that we need to get super hung up on it. So for a person maybe with the, we'll leave pregnancy out of this for, at this point, but for somebody with a connective tissue issue, although this may apply to pregnancy. So Ehlers-Danlos, Marfan's mixed connective tissue disorder or something like that. Is, are there any specific restrictions that you'd apply here? Um, let's say, again, they've been told, well, look, you've got this condition, and so your SI joint is uh, rotated. <laughs> uh, any particular like exercise restrictions or loading restrictions that you'd kind of place on that person? No. It's all yeah. what they can tolerate. Yeah, it's the same. So that, you know, people are like, well, any specific recommendations for people with Marfans or Ehlers Danlos or, or something like that. And it's like, not really, because the thing you would do, regardless of 
age, sex, ethnicity, medical history is kind of see what can the person tolerate right now, find the entry point and, and go from there progressively over time, build this broad base of physical development, empower them. Um, and then rather than have them be beholden to you, the professional reliant on your subject matter expertise, sort of guide them along the path. So they become self-sufficient. Ultimately, what I want in 12 weeks is not for you to be <laughs> the strongest you'll ever be, but to be self-sufficient in a way I'm, I'm here to kind of cut the learning curve if I can, but at the same time, like, I don't want you to necessarily have to follow me consistently just to move without fear. Yeah, it, it is that question of like, what if it all goes right? Like everyone's always, well, what if this happens? What if this roadblock happens? Well, what if it doesn't? Mm. Like how much have you limited yourself by listening to people tell you you can't do stuff or you shouldn't do stuff? And, and it's instilling that confidence that, hey, I, I am capable of more than what I thought I was, especially after clinician X told me that, the unicorn was causing my SI pain. Yeah. Yeah. And this particular, you know, we should, we should do a podcast on just rock tape and just get you to go off on rock tape for, for an hour. <laughs> you, you're you're going to have to get the explicit one on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, this has been good. So uh, for more information on SI joint anatomy, on the reliability of uh, professionals findings on physical exam and how this all works together um, in creating this, narrative we really want to avoid, check out the new article on our website. It's linked in the description below by Dr. Derek Miles. Also make sure to check out our sponsors, Pioneer. You can check them out over at generalleathercraft.com, Bells of Steel, bellsofsteel.us, and Viore. Again, there's some discount codes also in the link in the description below. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.